Okay, it's good to see all of you. Thanks for being here this morning. We are jumping back into the New Testament book of Acts to continue our series, walking through this very extended book. And as we begin this morning, I want to start with a review of where we have been thus far. So the beginning of biblical books are not accidental. They are purposeful. They set the stage. They chart a course. They lay a foundation for what's coming ahead of them. So Acts is a book that is filled with all kinds of action and adventure. There are plot twists galore in this book. So it's really curious that the book started with a call for Jesus followers to wait. Just stop. Now, the call to wait was also accompanied by a promise. They were waiting for a gift. Despite this promise of a gift, we talked about the difficulty of waiting for, for all of us, right? Like, this isn't just them. This is a reality for us here and now today as well. No one loves waiting, right? We, we go and wait in a line in the grocery store, right? If you still do that, if you don't just, like, put it into Target and then go pick it up or whatever, right? Like, if you still get in the line, which we do at some point in life, right, and we wait too long and then we're like, oh, I'm going to get out of this line. I'm going to go to this other line, right? Or if you've ever been to Disney or something like that, like, there's just waiting all the time, and it oftentimes annoys us, right? And even biblically, we find biblical authors writing like, how long, O Lord, until you come and you work and you rescue So Jesus' church was waiting, but in their waiting, they weren't just killing time. They were organizing in a way to best care for each other. We read at the beginning of Acts that they were devoting themselves to prayer. So so what they're doing is they are preparing themselves for the promise that is going to come. So we might say they are waiting expectantly. They didn't anticipate the promise would be unfulfilled either, right? Like, so they they expect this promise is going to be fulfilled, which maybe is different for us in our everydays as well. We we might wonder, like, the promise was made, but is it actually going to be fulfilled? They had no concern, at least we don't see or perceive any concern that God is going to ghost them in some way, right? Like, they are waiting expectedly. And eventually, God fulfills his promise. The small group of followers of Jesus were hanging out in a house in Jerusalem, and God comes to them. In Acts 2-4, we read there, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is the promise, that God would send his Holy Spirit. So God comes to inhabit, live in his people. And this whole experience of what is happening in Acts 2 is very powerful. There are sounds and there are sights and there are speaking in other languages. And it caused those in the house and many who were hearing, who were outside of the house as well, hearing what was going on, to be amazed and astonished by all of this. And in this powerful experience, Peter, one of Jesus' followers, began preaching about these events, trying to explain what is going on here amidst all of this craziness. And essentially what Peter does is he simply preaches Jesus. He points all of these people to him. And the result of this profound event and Peter's preaching was about 3,000 people began trusting in Jesus. So they turned from trusting in themselves 
and began placing their trust in Jesus. Their priorities moved from self-interest to the interests of Jesus' priorities. What does he say is important and, important and letting that dictate in their lives? And then the immediate picture given in Acts is people are gathering together regularly, spending time with one another. They sacrificially loved one another. People sold what was valuable to them so that the needs of others would be provided. People ate together, and this movement of God's Spirit resulted in people having hearts that are described at the beginning of Acts as glad and generous. So they're sacrificing what they have, who they are, and it's producing glad and generous hearts. This picture at the beginning of Acts is a depiction of what it looks like for us as we believe the gospel. Because we oftentimes think, man, if I have to give this thing up, if I have to sacrifice in this certain way, it's going to make me unhappy. I don't want to let this thing go, right? But this picture that we're being given is lay your life down for Jesus and it produces glad and generous hearts. Sometimes, oftentimes to our amazement. Oh, I thought if I gave that up, I'd be miserable. No, Jesus will do something even better for us, in us. Now, this all seems great. The church seems like they're getting along and everything is hunky-dory, right? But Acts 3 showed us that the inbreaking of God's Spirit brings about change that is unsettling for people. See, Peter and John, two leaders in Jesus' church, showed love to a man who had been crippled his whole life. He had never walked. And yet they came to this man and spoke Jesus' name, and this man was healed through the powerful name of Jesus. And this is where we're picking the story up. After they have healed this man, and people now have begun to come to, these, to, to Peter and John. And we find them today uh, in a little bit of a pickle. So if you got a ba- uh, Bible, you can turn there. you got a device you want to, you can swipe there. You can go ahead and do that. You can follow along. Otherwise, you can follow along on the screen. Behind me, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4. And we're going to read the first 22 verses. So I'm going to read these verses for us. And as they were speaking, they being Peter and John, were speaking to the people the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came up or came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man— By what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, 
By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the great stories like this, the ways in which we can see you moving and working historically, but then also how that intersects with our everyday lives here and now. So in these moments together this morning, God, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us understand that there is power in Jesus' name. He is the one we are called to trust in, to hope in. So would you do that in us this morning? Build our faith in Jesus. And it's in his powerful name I pray. Amen. Okay, so I want to set the stage here a little bit for what's going on in these verses. So when Peter and John healed this man, it created some chaos. This man was well known for sitting at the gate of the temple. Okay, so people would come into the temple, and and the temple would be kind of the epicenter of Jewish life, okay? Epicenter of social life. So all kinds of people are coming here every day, every week. Many people would give this individual money. Many folks knew of his plight. They saw him all the time. They were called to give alms in the Jewish religion. So that's what they would do. They would give gifts to this man. So if a man who had been sitting and begging for decades starts walking, it's going to cause an uproar. And it did. That's what happened. Acts 3.11 says people were astounded by this and they ran to Peter and John. Okay, so they're all gathering around these two individuals. And Peter and John think, oh, well, the crowd, the crowd is gathered, right? So what should we do? Well, let's start preaching Jesus to these individuals. So that's what they did. They began to preach Jesus to them. And it is at this point, the religious leaders, they're hearing about this as well, right? So they come upon Peter and John. And so verse 1 references priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees. Okay, so you've got high priest, the one who's kind of over Jewish religion, okay? And then 
underneath the high priest, you've got the captain of the temple. So the captain of the temple is kind of second ranking within the temple. So priests then, they, they would be basically employees of the temple. Okay, so th- their job is to teach. Okay, so they're teaching the law to Jewish people. They're offering sacrifices for people as they bring animals or other things to offer sacrifices. They're carrying out those duties. And then the Sadducees, they were a religious sect within the religious leadership in Israel. That They would be the majority. So you probably also have heard of Pharisees, right? So the Sadducees, they would be the majority sect within the religious leadership in Israel. We're going to talk more about the Sadducees in just a moment. Also then, though, we read in verses 5 and 6 of these other individuals, the rulers and elders and scribes with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who are of the high priestly family. So Annas, high priest, he's kind of the leader, the top dog, okay? Leader of religious life in Israel. Then you've got the rulers and elders and scribes are part of what is called, so, so they make up this body of 70 people called the Sanhedrin. Okay, And the Sanhedrin is a group of esteemed individuals that kind of guided religious life for Israel. Now what's clear is the healing of this lame man has gotten the attention of the higher-ups within Jewish religion. To the point that Peter and John are arrested. Okay, They're greatly annoyed and they arrest them. They just show up and arrest them. It's also gotten the attention of Jewish people, as now 5,000 men are counted as followers of Jesus, which means there's likely over 10,000 people, because this is not including women and children as well. So things are blowing up, right, for Christianity here at this time. All right, now we read in verse 2 that these religious leaders are greatly annoyed. And it's clear why they are feeling this annoyance at this time. It's because Peter and John were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Okay? They didn't like this. So there's something in this teaching that is threatening to these religious leaders. Now, for Sadducees, this is really easy. They didn't believe in a resurrection. So clearly, this is going to get their goal, right? Like, they they are not going to like anybody teaching resurrection because they didn't believe in it at all. But, But there's more going on here. It's just not that the Sadducees didn't believe in it. There's there's much more going on here. So what is the threat? And verse 7 is really helpful for us in gaining an initial understanding around this, with this question that is asked. By what power or by what name did you do this? So we've got to understand that these religious leaders are primarily concerned with the power and the names of anyone who might rival them. Who's going to come up against them? They possess power within the Jewish religion. Their names are esteemed. And the reality is they like their positions. They like the authority that is afforded to them. They like the comforts that all of this provides them. So the loss of any of that stuff is a threat. 
they feel threatened by what Peter and John have done because this is something that they can't do. They can't just walk up to someone and pronounce them healed. They've never been able to do that, right? Otherwise, they would have done that to this man. And then they would have flaunted that for all of Israel to see. But what they're seeing now is this thing happen, and now they're seeing all of these crowds, these flocks of people going after Peter and John, crowding around them, which means they're not crowding around the religious leaders. The threat here is loss of power and loss of influence. And I think that we can resonate with this, right? Maybe we're not like religious leaders, but but we all have aspects of power in our own lives. If you're a parent, okay, and your kid tries to rival you, like, you might get amped up. You might act in ways that you shouldn't because they're trying to come against you, right? Maybe at work. Maybe in a friendship. Maybe in some other way. But we all have control in certain spheres of life that we don't want to give up. And so the idea that we would lose control, we would lose comfort, we would lose power, we would lose money, we would lose something that is valuable to us, whatever that is for you, we don't like that. And we will do oftentimes everything we can to ensure we don't lose that thing. Now, one additional detail that we need to acknowledge here is where this healing took place. So historically, God had come to meet with his people in the temple, in the tabernacle. So if people wanted to meet with God, they would go to that place because that's where God had promised to come and meet with his people. And we talked earlier in this series that this healing occurred outside of the temple, but also kind of outside of the temple gate. So outside of the whole temple proper. So the idea that God's presence isn't contained to this specific area would suggest people don't need to come to the temple to meet God anymore. And this would cause another major crisis because people wouldn't be forced to come to the religious leaders any longer. There's no obligation for them to do that. Now, we talked in an earlier sermon on this man's healing how the fact that this occurred outside of the temple is all part of the way in which God is showing that the laws that governed Jewish life, that those are being dismantled. God is dismantling those laws. And following the law, then, is not the way to get to God. Following the law is not the way that we are saved, that they are saved. It's not how God is pleased with us. The fact this healing occurred outside of the temple and all of its association with law is intentional. It's communicating the idea that God is not requiring us now to come to him, to chase him down, to be approved by all the things we do, but he now is leaving the temple. He's coming to us. He's coming to rescue us. So he comes outside to bring us near to him. So God leaves the temple area, which is marked by cleanliness and ritual and purity, to draw near to sinners. 
So, so he becomes dirty. He takes dirtiness, impurity upon himself for us. And that's a massive part of what's going on in this story. The dis- this display of grace is intended to be beautiful for us. As spiritually lame individuals, that's us, we are spiritually lame individuals, we'll never be able to get inside, in God's kind of inner circle. We'll, We'll never be able to clean ourselves up unless he comes to us. But for those who think they possess the law, those in this story who are the guardians of the law, Those who think they excel at law-keeping, and this could be us, those who think they can clean themselves up by moral behavior, and then God will be pleased with them, everything that's happening here in this story is a real threat. If we're those type of people who think that we're really moral and we're better at others at following all the rules... Then, then this kind of a thing is threatening to us because our merit is no longer based on what we do as compared to others. I think about this often with my kids because my kids are rule followers, and I'm thankful for that. And, and they're oftentimes in a school context where maybe kids aren't following rules. And it's really easy for my kids to think, well, I'm better than them because I'm not doing what they're doing. But this story right here really pushes against that reality. God's not saying, I like you because you follow the rules and I don't like them because they don't follow the rules. No, he's leaving the temple area. He's leaving that which is clean and pure to chase after those who are dirty and impure. So these religious leaders, in seeking the power or name that's behind this healing, these religious leaders think they'll compare favorably to whomever it might be because they think they're the guardians of the law. They think they keep the law impeccably. They know it better than others. And so Peter takes full advantage of the question posed to them, and he's just going to give a full dose of Jesus. So he first highlights the foolishness of expending energy because a man was healed. They're coming at them, right, because a good deed was done. Is that actually why you're going to question us? You're going to come at us because this man who was lame his whole life has been healed? How about we just celebrate and have a party and enjoy the fact that this man can now walk? But Peter doesn't miss the chance to point to Jesus and all of this and acknowledge his name and his power. So Peter is really explicit that Jesus stands behind this healing. So he says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, by him, this man is standing before you well. It's only by Jesus' name. Okay, if we think about this in our own context, when we're connected to something that goes really well, it's really easy for us to want to take credit, right? 
when my child's basketball team is losing games, I, maybe I just want to distance myself as the coach, right? But when they're winning the games, maybe I, maybe I want to be like, oh yeah, that must have been some good coaching, right? But notice what Peter does here. He takes no credit whatsoever. He is so explicit in this. He is ensuring there is no confusion about who or why this healing occurred. It's only Jesus. It's only his name. It's only his power. And then what Peter does, he also is explicit about connecting this healing with Jesus raising, right? He goes right back to resurrection, even though he knows this has already been a sticking point. This is why the religious leaders came to them in the first place, is because they were talking about resurrection. But now he goes there again, and he references it's because of Jesus' resurrection. And this really preaches to us today. I think it's easy for us to be like, I I don't know anybody who's been raised from the dead. Like, that's just like this far-off thing. The reality is, for us, here and now today, we're given these physical examples in the Bible to point us to something greater. Okay? If you are a Christian, you've experienced this. You have moved from death to life. There's tons of miracles that have happened in this room. Dead people came alive. Not because they were really good at following rules, but because Jesus left what was comfortable and he chased after people who were not chasing after him. Resurrection is normative in the Christian faith. And Peter is trying to help illustrate that reality. He's pointing to Jesus' resurrection. But then, Peter takes us a step further. He doesn't just point to Jesus. He doesn't just highlight resurrection. He also then highlights the opposition to Jesus that occurred historically. And he mentions how these religious leaders crucified and rejected Jesus. Jesus is the one, and he's making this clear, that you, religious leaders, killed, extinguished. The one you thought you took care of. It's him. That one that infuriated you so much before, well, he's back. And he points to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, and only Jesus, healed this man. In one sense, this is brilliant, right? Like, who are these religious leaders going to be mad at? Who are they going to beat? Who are they going to threaten? Jesus isn't there, right? But what immediately sticks out to these religious leaders is the boldness of Peter and John. They notice this, but it says that they are astonished by the mixture of boldness that these these men exhibit and the fact that they, they perceive that these men are very normal individuals. So it says the religious leaders perceived that Peter and John were uneducated, that they were common. So it's important for us to understand why this astonished these religious leaders. See, the religious leaders were very well educated. They had spent years and years in school, 
studying. They'd invested years of studying the commands of God, memorizing God's law. They knew what we call the Old Testament, like the back of their hands. And as a result of all of this work that they have put in, they were confident. They knew God's law. They knew the expectations. And all of this confidence then, all of this study, had afforded them followers as well. It afforded them notoriety. It afforded them power. So we've got to see their paradigm here. Okay, their paradigm was hard work and sacrifice produced confidence, produced boldness. So as they looked at Peter and John, they saw something very different. What they saw did not make sense to them. They perceived that Peter and John were uneducated, that they were very ordinary. And they thought, these men have no reason to be bold. And yet they were. And so this didn't compute for them at all. And this highlights the danger for us of not being fully convinced that salvation comes by grace through faith. These religious leaders thought their knowledge and power, their studying, proved that they were better, that they were invincible, that this is why they were saved, why God approved them. Their success, their position, proved God delighted in them. But the same way Peter and John were unexpectedly bold, is the same reason the lame man was healed outside of the temple. And that was because of something undeserved. It was because of grace. Grace is beautiful, but grace is also confusing, disorienting at times, because it's so good. I've had plenty of examples with my kids when they know that they've done something wrong and they're expecting, they're expecting the discipline, right? And when I give them grace, it's almost like they want to be punished in that moment. Grace is disorienting. In this case, it shut the mouths of the religious leaders. It says they had nothing to say in opposition. So, so in this sense, grace is astounding. It is astonishing. It leaves people speechless. So when you think of your own life, if you consider yourself a Christian, when you think of Jesus saving you, we should sense this. How? Why would God save me? I know me. I know the mess that I am, the messes I've created in my life. I know, at least in some sense, how selfish I can be. And yet, God would still come to me and rescue me and give me all kinds of good gifts in my life as well. So on one hand, grace is astounding and astonishing. On the other hand, grace offends at times as well. It makes people mad, literally and figuratively. And that's what we see with these religious leaders. These religious leaders fire back 
with madness. Complete nonsense. So they are looking at a man who has been healed from a lifelong lameness. Okay? They're looking at this man who they've seen over and over unable to move. The only way he got to where he was every day was someone carried him there. Okay? They're looking at him who for 40 years hasn't been able to walk and now he's walking around. They are looking at swarms of people who are amazed at this reality of what's transpiring here. They are astonished by the boldness of Peter and John. And they are befuddled as to what to do. What do they do? Right? They are greatly annoyed. They're mad. So what do they do? Let's arrest them. Let's make sure this doesn't spread. Like, who wouldn't want healing to spread? How mad do you need to be in your mind to not want that goodness to be pervasive? All they can do is self-protect their power, their positions, their comfort. One thing this does, this is proof that a miracle won't convince someone to trust Jesus. Right? It's in front of their eyes. They know this story so well. We would love to see miracles. Miracles is not the insurance that someone would actually believe in Jesus. What we see in the religious leaders is madness. And yet, let's be careful, okay? Because we can look at them and we can say, how ridiculous are they? But what about us? What about all the times in our everyday lives as well that we minimize all that Jesus has done for us? When we're just blind to the grace that has been extended to us or even is being extended to us in the moment. The fact that I'm breathing right now, right, is evidence that God is being kind to me. He is pushing in air, pushing out air. This is His kindness. The fact that I can look at my wife and two of my kids and know how much I love them. The fact that I can stand in front of a church that I love to be a pastor of. There's so much grace all around me. And yet so often I get greatly annoyed by really stupid things. And this is true for all of us. So let's not just look at the religious leaders and judge them. Let's let them be a lesson to us. Let them be a mirror to us so that we can look at our own hearts so that we don't do this same thing that they're doing, that we're not mad, literally or figuratively. Okay, so we like to end our sermons with gospel application. It's not about who we are. It's not about what we need to do when we walk out of here today, okay? Christian preaching is Christian preaching because we're preaching Jesus. That's what makes it Christian, okay? So we want to preach Jesus. I think it's really easy for us to maybe 
read a story like this, and then we get to the end of the sermon, and then we're like, okay, don't be mad, okay? And when you get mad, just stop and like distract yourself or do something, but just don't, don't be annoyed. Don't be mad. Okay, that's not Christian preaching, okay? And there's a reason why we don't end our sermons with that kind of application point. So where is the gospel in this story? So we firmly believe the whole Bible is pointing to Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. And we can see really clearly, well, Peter's preaching Jesus. He's preaching his resurrection, right? But what is maybe another way in which we can see the gospel embodied here? Acts 4.21. They let them go, finding no way to punish them. So I will contend this is the gospel in a nutshell. Romans 5.8 says it this way. Therefore, because of what Jesus did for us, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay. So Acts 4.21. They let them go, finding no way to punish them. For Christians... This will be our story. When we stand before Jesus, he'll have no way to punish us. He will let us go free because he took, his punish- took our punishment upon himself. And so here in this story, we get a little glimpse of what happens ultimately, eternally, as it pertains our own sin. Now, I realize Peter and John, they're going to die eventually, okay? That's going to happen physically for them. But in this instance, we see an example of how grace overcomes law. The law and its religious leaders are stymied by grace. They're left speechless by it. They've got no answer for grace. And this is beautiful. Grace, especially for those of us who have had our lives changed by it, ought to leave us speechless. And it ought to fill us with many words of the kindness of Jesus towards us. So, belief in Jesus is where freedom is found. I know that all of us walked in here today with something that is binding us up. Something. Maybe it's big. Maybe it's small. Every single one of us has something that is greatly annoying us, that is frustrating us, that we'd like to hide from, run from, not deal with. We have something that's binding us up. And the call in this story is hope in Jesus. Don't hope in just fixing that thing. Because it might get fixed and it might not. It might resolve the way you want it to or it might not. But Jesus is sure. And there's freedom found in Him. In His name. Secondly then, it's just a call in here for us to be with Jesus. 
So Acts 4.13 says, the religious leaders recognized that they had been with Jesus. So there's no explanation, right? These were common, uneducated men who are filled with boldness. And the only answer was, and they've been with Jesus. We want to be a church that is recognized for our nearness to Jesus. That unimpressive people like you and I can possess an uncommon boldness. That our love for others is viewed as foolish because of how sacrificial it is. But being with Jesus means we rest in him, okay? Which basically means prioritizing Jesus, placing faith in him over all the other things that we're enticed to hope in, to trust in, to spend our time on. It's to prioritize what Jesus prioritizes. So spending time being with his church, enjoying his grace in its many forms, being changed by his word. So I would say, enjoy your Netflix. Enjoy your hobbies. These can be good gifts from God. But don't do any of those things aside from Jesus. Don't let those things replace Jesus. See the connectedness to God's grace in those things, but don't worship them. Don't make your life revolve around those things. Let's be relentless in trusting in what Jesus has done for us and learn to rest in that.